back to Life North of the 54th. I'm Garrett Brown. And I'm Preston Brown. Happy to have you join us today. And our guest today is Mr. David Woodruff. So we'll have him introduce himself. Hey, I'm David Woodruff. I'm currently an Edmonton resident, but I spend most of my life in Grand Prairie. Kind of moved around a lot since then, but pretty happy in Edmonton. Thanks for joining us, David. It's been quite a while since I've seen you, but it's great to catch up with you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me and for allowing me to make podcast debut. Yeah, well, welcome. <laughs> That's, it's, a, it's an honor for us, then. Yeah. <laughs> so do you want to share with us some of your earliest memories of the Peace Country? So I was actually born in Pincher Creek, which is uh, yeah, southern Alberta, but moved to Grand Prairie in grade two. So yeah, pretty much, you know, when consciousness memories started. So yeah, lots of memories of GP. Yeah, I think growing up in GP, it's a very interesting place in that, like, you know, it's like kind of interesting politically. The climate is, you know, super far north, like really not too many people live that far north in the world. Yeah. So I think a lot of my memories, of course, are like with winters and the snow and kind of how you keep yourself occupied in those winters. But just those like days where you just get like feet of snow and you can like jump up, go on the shed and jump off and just land in your yard and almost like a little ball pit in your backyard. Yeah. 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 And just the the vast openness of everything like you just you know you could drive five hours in any direction and not hit any bigger civilization yeah yeah so the winter time i mean it does feel like it lasts most of the year that's probably maybe half a year at best but do you enjoy winter sports do you enjoy the winter time i think uh, in recent years i've been a lot more trying to pick up a lot more winter activities so i kind of keep saying so just lately been you know bringing up cross-country skiing back in grand prairie I would go to Nighthawk a lot and I got pretty decent on these little ski blades. Yeah. Yeah. I never, never got too much into skating, but of course, like, you know, the summers were always pretty great too. being able to stay up so late. I actually have a lot of, I feel like a lot of my, yeah, I was reflecting in many of my memories where I'm kind of like kind of outdoors and just kind of more experiencing the peace country, say more was actually like at your place. Oh, wow. Okay. And, you know, getting up to whatever we'd get up there, like, I feel like every time I went there, it'd be something different. Like, you know, are we going to play Axis and Allies for like six hours or yeah. <laughs> are we going to like sword fight our way through a giant stack of like steaks? Yeah. Dangerously stacked pallets. And... <laughs> yeah. Dangerously stacked pallets. Yeah. Maybe we'll have a big giant bonfire. So, yeah, I feel like my, in a way, like the, the land I connected to most might even be like, yeah, your guys' acreage up there. Yeah, well, thanks for that. I do think the winter, the snow was so deep, but I also, the older I got, the more I realized the snow just never melted, so it just kept stacking up. And I was much shorter then, so the snow was much deeper in comparison <laughs> to yeah. how I live now. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, David, were you there at, there was a youth activity in the winter at our place once that was like a camp out? I don't remember what age I was at the time. I know Preston was there because you know, it was at our place, but yeah. I don't know if you would. Were... I can't, can't quite remember. Do you remember any of like activities? Did slingshot paintball in the snow? Oh, I do remember uh, slingshot paintball. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I was just thinking of that as like a, as a winter activity, like on the land that we were at, like our acreage. I think that year it had, but there was a lot of snow, but it had melted a little bit. Yeah. But... And it made like a layer of ice over the snow in the field, oh, yeah. which made for cutting blocks of snow out really great. You could cut them out and stack them much more easily than you could roll it or something like that. So it would make great for forts and made, then made excellent for paintball forts. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I think another, I guess, kind of like outdoor memory I had a lot is there's a tradition for my family to go to O'Brien Park in the fall. And O'Brien Park is, yeah, just a park with tons of deciduous trees. And there's not really a big field per se. It's, it's quite wooded. Yeah. Um, so we'd go in the fall when there's just tons of leaves and, yeah, just rake up the biggest leaf pile, you know, have hot dogs and jump into that. Oh, man. Yeah, O'Brien, it is quite beautiful. And the, it's probably some of the largest deciduous trees in the whole area by diameter and height there because it's mostly coniferous forests. 
that are like the true woodlands, but because it's lower in the valley, it's quite beautiful there. Yeah, maybe a little warmer, bit a little bit longer growing season at the bottom of the valley there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a beautiful park. I have great memories from O'Brien Park too. Sometimes with your family, um, or other people from from town, but yeah, it's great. A really great place to hang out and have a picnic. Yeah, especially in the summer when it's yeah when the the sun doesn't set. Yeah, for for quite a while. <laughs> exactly. So David, as you went from high school in Grand Prairie, what took you afterwards? Like, where did where did life take you after high school? Right. Yeah. So I stayed in Grand Prairie for another year. I moved out. I was actually the last one of my parents and my sister Kat to live in Grand Prairie because my dad had retired and, you know, they got their kind of retirement place set up, their acreage, and they went to go live there. And I wasn't quite ready to go to school. So I stayed in Grand Prairie, you know, just kind of worked at Best Buy and I guess a bit of a gap year. Then, yeah, left Grand Prairie, went to Edmonton started school. And yeah, I found university to not be quite as fun as high school. You know, I think I missed, I really missed having just my constant friend group that I had in high school. Yeah, yeah. And I moved in actually with Steve and uh, Kurt. That was my first place in Edmonton, Steve Mackis. So it was really great living with them. But yeah, I I think I found the transition to university quite difficult and kind of bounced around in different things to study. Ultimately, ended up with a computing science minor and a psychology major. And yeah, during my time in university, I think uh, around the second year, I was having a really bad year. Like, yeah, probably one of the more lower points in my life. My GPA was like, you know, 2.2, 2.3, lots of like withdrawals and C's and D's. And you know, I got in the habit of, you know, smoking canvas every day. And it was just like, not, not a super healthy place. And I knew it was not a great place. And I just wanted to like, get out and, you know, experience life more, because I kind of felt I was just in a bit of a rut. Yeah. And then my best friend that I grew up with from Pincher Creek actually finished his mission and came to Edmonton. And so we decided to live together. And so we moved into a YSA house, which I was pretty open with doing it at the time because I kind of almost felt it would be my like kind of rehab house, I guess, you know? Yeah. If I was surrounded by people who were, you know, not doing the kind of like weed and stuff. It'd be a lot easier to keep my grade straight. So my GPA definitely jumped up like a full point, which was great, but I still felt like, you know, some adventure in my life was kind of missing because my main hobby probably up to that point was just playing video games and you know, with friends didn't really feel like I didn't really have that many interesting hobbies. So I heard one of my friends at university talk about this program called Explore, which is a federal program where they basically give you a bursary to take five weeks of language immersion. If you're English, they will pay for it in French. And if you're French, they will pay for you to come do language immersion in English Canada. Okay. So I took them up on that and it's like housing, you even get some money for food. And so I yeah shipped off to Quebec for a summer. And yeah, I think that I still reflect on that as one of probably the best, you know, five week periods of my life. I just felt like I saw a completely different side of myself that I didn't know existed. Like I've always kind of identified as introverted, someone who like gets energy from being alone. But over there, like if I was just by myself, like I, it just felt off. I was like, I need to go find someone just to like hang out with and, you know, spend time with. So that, yeah, that was a lot of fun. The most fun probably I've had in life. And I think my mindset was just in such a unique place that I had originally thought of maybe staying over there for a bit and going to Montreal. But I also had another idea kind of at the back of my mind where, you know, what if I just biked off to the East Coast? And I thought that idea a few times, actually just in the drive, like between Grand Prairie and Edmonton, when it's just like vast stretches of highway and wilderness. And I'd always kind of thought like, you know, what, can you bike this? Would someone ever bike this? And I kind of, I think grown attached to my bike in Grand Prairie, because Grand Prairie, it's, it's a good size where you can get around town pretty easily on a bike. And Bear Creek Ravine is really beautiful. And I actually just visited Grand Prairie last year and went back to the Bear Creek Ravine. And 
yeah, I was really impressed of just how beautiful it is down there and that whole trail system. We would go through quite a bit of walks there with my family. And I think that's kind of another place I really connected to the nature of the area. Yeah, I agree with that. It's one of my favorite places in town is the Muscatipi Park Ravine area. Yeah, so good. But yeah, so I kind of had this thought of like, you know, what if you just bike on the highway? So before I left to do it, I Googled like, you know, biking across Canada into Google. And then I found some guy named Steve who just like plotted out the whole trip in 60 days. And not that he did in 60 days, but like, you know, broken down into 60 parts. Yeah, yeah. I was like, okay, that's a thing. I'm going to go do that. So I got a pawn shop bike. I went to Canadian Tire. I found a discount kit carrier that had the attachment to the bike broken. So I would lash it to the side of my bike. Okay. And I just like kind of threw everything I needed into the back of that kit carrier and probably looked pretty, you know, <laughs> pretty interesting sight on the side of the highway. But over the next month and a half, I biked from Trois-Rivières, Quebec, all the way to Halifax, and then up north, and I took the ferry to Newfoundland. And yeah, had a real blast with just random camp wherever I wanted. I think I only paid for camping around three nights. <laughs> okay, in actual camping places? Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, you know, you just, the sun's starting to go down and you just start looking for a good place to put your tent in because, you know, Canada is so huge and it's, it's pretty easy to find. Yeah. Not very many people in a lot of the spots in between on the highway. Yeah. It's very adventurous. I must say. <laughs> so you were cycling alone there on, on that trip? Yeah. Yeah. All solo. Actually, Quebec was a good one to do too, because part of the way they have this uh, La Rouvert, which goes up the St. Lawrence on the east side. And it kind of has a few municipal campgrounds where you can just set up a tent for free. And I ran into some other cycle tourists, which was really cool to see. Yeah. Yeah. We travel with them for a few days. Yeah. It'd be beautiful because you get to see a sunset over the St. Lawrence every night. And I think that's one thing I love the most about sleeping outside is the sunsets every night. Yeah. Because indoors, you know, you just kind of are watching your TV or whatever, and the sun goes down, you don't even notice. But yeah. when you're outdoors, you know, you can't help but notice it. Yeah, especially since it changes the whole uh, the whole experience of being outside. The natural light's gone, then, then you got to figure out what to do. <laughs> the sky really is the big screen of our world. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What time of year was that? Was that the summer then? That was, yeah, summer of 2014. In a previous episode I had with Stephen Mackis, we talked a lot about the transition from high school towards adult life and how it's difficult, mm -hmm. how it's not very straightforward, and you feel like it's difficult to find footing. Stephen and I both felt that it took like 10 years to sort of get a foot down on like what it really means to be living uh, as an adult. Yeah, I'm glad you, that sounds like a pretty amazing trip, sort of like quite the experience. Yeah. If you want to elaborate on it or like tell us more about what you did after you got to Newfoundland. Let's see. Yeah. After I finished the trip, yeah, it felt really great, but I also felt like I really just like stumbled my way through it. Like I'd been you know, kind of keeping track of my pace and it was like 12 kilometers an hour, you know, very slow. My pack list was not good at all. It was very bulky and yeah, just kind of a random bike I got off the pawn shop. And I just had this really deep desire to do it better, do it bigger. So over the year, I was able to get through the school year. I remember the end of that school year was also not as difficult, but like I just I had this big bike tour in mind and I just wanted to get to that so badly. And so, yeah, I planned my gear list. I had done more research, you know, bought some proper gear. And so the next summer after that first bike tour, that's the summer I biked from Edmonton down the West Coast. So Edmonton through the mountains to Victoria, ferried across to the States and then just down the highway. That felt really good because it's like all my pieces of gear. I knew what I needed. The first month was pretty solitary, kind of finding wherever you could put your tent. And I remember the first few weeks, I felt like, you, you know, you're not sure always at the beginning of venture if it's like the right thing you should be doing. When you do something big and unknown, it's kind of like, well, you know, what am I doing? Why am I out here? Why am I not like back at home doing normal stuff? But I've always found there's kind of like a point and it's, usually fairly early on, but there was always a point where that mentality just like switches. And on that bigger trip, that point for me was about halfway through the mountains. I ran into some other cycle tourists and they were like, hey, you know, we set up at this municipal park right here. You should come join us. You know, here's some groceries we got. And so I sat down and talking with them. And there's this one guy and he's kind of a shorter, slightly thicker guy. He's just got like this small frame, 26 inch tire mountain bike. 
and he's got a trailer with this duct taped tote with a bunch of cracks in it. <laughs> and in talking with him, I find out his name's Steve. And, you know, we always talk about how much you bike tour. And he's like, oh, yeah, I've gone back and forth a couple of times. And I'm just doing the short one with my buddy from Calgary. And I've actually written a book on how to do it. Yeah, so it turns out I like ran into this guy that had wrote the book on how to bike tour in Canada and who I had like looked to and used his guide to go eastward. Wow, yeah, that's pretty cool. So yeah, as soon as as soon as that I was like, Okay, yeah, this is this is awesome, this is worth it. Even if the next like two months are terrible, like it's been worth it just for this to happen. But once you get to the coast, it's really easy sailing because it's a very popular cycling route. So you have almost kind of a network of people. Everyone's going north to south and everyone's staying at the same state parks where you walk in six bucks, hot showers, you know, these state parks like book out as soon as reservations open, but there's like a space just for your hike and bike people. Wow. So yeah, you just get to walk in and stay at these world-class state parks on the coast and see people that, you know, maybe you saw him yesterday, maybe you haven't seen him for a week. You know, there's like the guy on the recumbent bike who you always pass, but he's just slow and steady and he'll catch up at the end of the day. And yeah. Yeah. So that was, yeah, it was really a special time. And I still keep in contact with some of those people. Like, yeah, I was just able to fortunately visit with uh, one couple I'd met on the coast just uh, earlier this month. How long did it take you to get from Victoria down? Did you go all the way to San Diego? Yeah, to San Diego. I spent three months on that trip. I wasn't going a super fast pace because I was also working on like a personal iOS app development project. Yeah, I was trying to like build a interesting take on like a social media app. I was trying to build an app specifically for students that could kind of meet together in study groups, but without like sending text messages. Because I felt like text messaging, meeting people over text is, you know, kind of an uncomfortable thing to do. And people who are in the same classes, maybe they have a spot at the table and just want to sit down with somebody. Right. So there's a lot of time I'd go to a, like a state park and you can stay max like three nights and I'd, you know, hole up there and then ride into town, go to the library and work on my app and carry on down the road. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it was very creatively liberating, I think. Like it was a really good balance of physical activity and just like thinking about an interesting project you're working on. Because you'd have these big, intense moments of lots of work, and then you'd be able to spend the next like two days thinking about it as you bike down the highway. And I don't know, I'm I'm sure you guys can relate, but I find like when you're doing physical activity, you kind of you you just feel like you're able to process things a little bit better, and things maybe stew a little bit faster. And I would agree with that. Yeah, so would I. As long as you're not doing too much critical thinking while you're trying to work. If it's just like pushing the pedals on a bicycle or shoveling dirt, it's really easy to think a lot about things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The thing I noticed most about doing a PhD is the downtime of doing hands-on labor work of some kind and thinking about problems isn't there because I'm just pushing pencils all day. And so it's always mental labor and it's kind of exhausting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know what you mean, David. The physical labor really lets you take time to think. And especially when it's something that you have just enough focus in doing, but not, like as Preston says, not so much that it's critical and pushes out any chance of complex thought. Yeah. So when you took this trip down the West Coast, had you graduated at that point? I hadn't graduated at that point. I think I still had, yeah, I had another year and a half after that. So not the most practical financial decisions. I'd kind of just use the leftover money from student loans and, you know, buy a bike with it. But I think it was a foundational in helping myself build an identity in that transition to an adulthood and grow as a person and learn a lot more about myself and just finding that, you know, I really like the just chipping away kilometer by kilometer at a big problem and seeing the benefits that coming out of that. And yeah, not so much about the highs and the lows, but just like that nice steady level of effort is where I really like to spend my time. I've also found that this is something that's a difficult thing to learn of doing like, as they say, like Rome wasn't built in a day, like doing something big, but slowly and deliberately. I mean, I did it a lot in Grand Prairie when I worked construction. You know, the superintendent says, do this, do that. And it's like a little bit at a time. And then suddenly after many months, it's done. But it's a little different when you do it yourself and like you're managing how much time you're putting in and you're managing the kind of work that you're doing, learning how to build something large a step at a time. It's a lot and it's really empowering. Yeah. It can be sometimes hard to see the bigger picture when you're kind of in the thick of it. 
But after all that time doing the project, doing the thing, and finally seeing it come together is so rewarding and able to look back and see your journey is very rewarding. But yeah, so I got back, kind of leveraged more into that personal project. I don't think I ever really had aspirations to, you know, be the next Zuckerberg or whatever. I kind of just like felt like I had a lot of ideas in my head that I just needed to get out there and experiment with. But I eventually launched my app towards the end of my university career. And I got like, I think 13 users. Someone actually like made a posting group in it. They didn't make it right, which is much more my fault as the designer than theirs. But that day was such a roller coaster. Yeah. You know, after that kind of rush, I kind of realized that I was getting less interested in the problems of university students. Yeah. <laughs> which, you know, if, I don't mean to like dismiss those problems at all, but. Right. Yeah. You just start kind of looking out into the bigger world as you finish your university career and seeing all these things like the intense poverty that can be in a city started to really attract my attention. Uh, and just kind of the helping sector, the nonprofit sector, I found really interesting. And I only really learned about the nonprofit sector as like a possible career option pretty late into university through like a nonprofit internship board mentoring program. Because, yeah, none of my friends or family had ever worked in nonprofits. So it was pretty out of my radar. But yeah, that was kind of where I went right after university. I got a job with Wall Street Community Services in Edmonton, which is kind of like, I want to say one of two organizations that if you're barred from there, like there's probably really nowhere in the city you're allowed to go. But it attracts people experiencing homelessness. And, you know, there's some people who are scared to even drive in front of the building. They'll refuse to do it. But I got a job there as a database administrator for basically the data system that they enter personal information in and service delivery information in. Because, you know, the transaction between Wall, like Wall Street and the government is, you know, the government gives them money and then Wall Street gives them data about what they're doing with that money. Right. Yeah, because you always have to account for where money goes if you get government money. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you should account for whichever money you get, but, you know, <laughs> government is very concerned yeah. about it. You don't have to do it personally, but it's a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, after I had sort of left Grand Prairie, I hadn't, David and I, you and I hadn't really crossed paths very much, but you ended up down in Utah when I was there as an undergraduate. Yeah. And you were, you were in Salt Lake for a conference or some kind of training, and we, we met up and had a great chat. Yeah. Wall Street was a really cool employer, and I really liked their style, and it was very much like, we're just going to try things, you know, very low bureaucracy if you had an interesting project that you wanted to bring about. So I was starting to feel the travel bug again. And also kind of had the feeling of, okay, like, this is what it is to be an adult. Like I, I did five years of school, just to like, have to go sit in an office for like 40 hours a week. And I think there's some kind of like internal struggle, <laughs> you know, accepting that reality. Yeah, yeah. So I was like, the world is so big. There's still so much I want to know. So I pitched up Wall Street like, hey, will you let me work remotely and I can go to the States and I'll go to like 13 cities and visit like all their kind of like most impoverished areas and then see the nonprofits that serve them and see what they do for data. Because I feel like it's such a niche area that I just wanted to know what other people did with it. And somehow they said, yep, yeah, that's a good idea. And here's even like couple grand grant to help you along your way. So wow. yeah, I plotted these 13 cities that I did in two months and did a bit of a write-up for each city. And one of those cities was Salt Lake City, which I was really interested to go check out because they had gotten some press around solving homelessness, which whenever you see a headline like that, you know, it's probably not true. <laughs> they just are like, you know, doing a housing first model. Yeah, I was curious to go see there and catch up with those nonprofits and get the vibe, I guess. And working with nonprofits in that way, I think, is really nice because they're just like helping people. Like that, that's just their cause for living is helping people. So when I come and you know, I have an interest in this, like I just would walk in and be like, hey, do you have a data person I can talk to? And they'd say, yeah, oh, here's Bob. Like, and then they just like talk to me for an hour. And I just, we just have a great conversation about what they did, you know what we did in Canada. And yeah, I was able to learn a lot, see a lot of different styles. How did you find the nonprofits in those cities? That sounds like a hard task to you. Yeah, it was, uh, actually, I would just uh, go on Google Maps and search like homeless services. Oh, okay. 
And I would kind of try to find like the Boyle Street-ish ones. So like not a shelter, but like still serving that population. If I was being good, I'd call an email ahead of time. But yeah, other times I would just kind of walk in and go to the front desk. Yeah. Do you have an appointment here, sir? <laughs> <laughs> like those indeed would make appointments. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, there's some really great organizations out there. I think one of the most impressed I was was in Nashville. And yeah, I, I just showed up at the front desk. to this place called Room at the Inn. And guy immediately kind of met up and we did a tour. And one thing I thought was really interesting was they had their staff clean the feet of their participants you know, once a week at that time, which... Of course, it's religiously symbolic, but also just like a very, yeah, powerful act of service from, again, like to a population that I think a lot of people would be scared to go near, you know, let alone touch and wash their feet. Yeah, that's really intense. Yeah. And, you know, even the CEO of that organization just like took some time to sat with me and gave me some pins that they had given to their Canadian hockey team with the Nashville Predators, like the hockey, Canadian hockey players on that team. And they had some like specially made Canadian room at the end pins made for them. And yeah, it was just a pretty special place. That's, and that's one reason I really, I really liked working with nonprofits is yeah. It's just some of the like highest quality character people you can find. I don't really have words for that. That's, that's incredible. It would be really moving. Yeah. The people at room at the end, a lot of them or some of them, I assume were volunteers as well. Yeah, sure. And they're always trying to like innovate on, programming and you know they're actually like kind of right across the street from like jack white's third man records place and you know they had a like a relationship with them and they were like building a new housing develop on top of their building so they could better house people as they try and like battle addictions and get out of homelessness yeah some really cool things and i was able to kind of take all that and go back to Boyle street and give a bit of a presentation to everybody and and share some of my learnings and yeah, it's it a good time. And I got to see, catch up with some old friends I haven't seen in a while. Yeah. I was, I was really lucky that they went with that. Did you find that you gathered any information or ideas that really helped advance or revolutionize what you were doing at your own nonprofit? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think more generally some of my biggest learning was just kind of seeing the difference between like Canadian and American systems. And that Canadian has a lot more government funding, whereas American is a lot more philanthropy based. So actually, most times I would walk into a nonprofit and ask to talk to a data person, like if they're, it could be like a fundraiser data person instead of like a programs data person like we, we would have in Canada. And yeah, that's just because like, yeah, if you have people giving you money, then you don't really need to bother yourself with getting government funding. And actually, I kind of had a bit of a, I guess like, I don't know, not identity crisis, but career crisis, crisis is a strong word, but I went to this one place outside of Austin, Texas, that was like a tiny home village um, for people who yeah been in poverty. Uh, they started as like just a meal delivery service and built the community up and eventually got a plot of land and got tiny home companies to come build them tiny homes and participants would come in, they'd get a house and they would kind of need to find a job. Uh, they would do and they had all sorts of stuff there they had like chickens they had like a glass blowing place people some people would do leather working some patchwork and i think that above all else has been the most effective programming i saw and just that like you could just feel the community there right and i would try to ask them like difficult questions like okay is there you know an alcohol problem here and the guy who's giving me a tour would just like you know flag down whoever was nearby and he's like jimmy is there an alcohol problem here You'd be like, yeah, not enough of it. Um, but just like, <laughs> yeah, just a super laid back. Everyone had a purpose to be there. Everyone was super excited to be there. And it really just kind of made our, like, you know, some of the normal housing shelter systems I've seen in Canada just look like a, you know, soulless machine in some ways. Yeah. Like there's a lot of good work being done there, but there's a really big spectrum of what is actually going to help people and what is just going to put people in a house so they stop spending time on the street. Yeah. Everybody needs to lift for themselves, you might say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, having purpose. There's always something we can do personally. Having purpose. Yeah, yeah, purpose in a community. Like, without those two things, I think, yeah, life is pretty dreary. 
Would you be okay to expand on that a little more, David? I feel like a feeling like you were an introvert and then going through this life experience and finding that actually being with people does actually energize you in your terms and like being a part of community. I don't know if you have any thoughts or feelings that maybe you want to share more about that. Yeah. I mean, I guess my you know identity with the community has gone through a lot of turbulence in my life. I think stopped going to church around 60 or 17, which was like at that point had been a huge part of my identity. As I'm sure you know, YouTube can relate like in Grand Prairie, there's not too many LDS people. So like yeah. when you are LDS, you really stick out. Right. And at that, I kind of like reveled in it in some ways, I guess. Like, you know, often it's like the first thing you talk about when you're meeting someone new. And hey, this is who I am. And, you know, the guy in gym class would just call you like Mormon and not like as a derogatory term. That was just like, what do you call you? And you're just like, yep, that's that's me. Yeah. Yeah. Some people just called me church. Yeah, you see. Exactly. Yeah. So kind of leaving that put me in some different ways, identity wise. I think that's kind of why I drifted not so well in the following years after that, because I, I built all my identity around something and then I had left that behind. And so I, you know, really needed a new identity and a new community. And I think that's still something I'm working towards today. Like for a while, even after university, like the idea of committing to a place or a community was like very anxiety provoking. Like a year lease was just not something I wanted. I wanted to be able to just move if I felt like it. I um, wanted to be able to just, you know, if I started getting that travel bug, just go off to South America for three months and, you know, go do something there. And I think eventually, while those travel experiences were great and you learn more about yourself, you really start to see the value in having that base and that community and those people you can really trust and just freely spend hours with. So up until like August, I'd been kind of flip-flopping on where I wanted to live, but I kind of just had to like put my foot down and be like, nope, Edmonton, you know, I got really good friends there. I got lots of family there. Sure, I could move to Vancouver and be closer to the mountains, but like building that social network would just be like 10 years of work of putting myself out there and trying to build those connections to the point that I have them here. And those are just 10 years I could spend doing other stuff here. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. Do you have a thought or question, Preston? I was just thinking it. We're talking about identity. Like I personally, I often tell people when I meet clients or whoever I'm meeting, it's, it's like, oh, I grew up in Grand Prairie County, like very rural area of the province. So for me personally, I still have some identity with the peace country or that area, but David, do you have any relation or identity from being from Grand Prairie area, like going to school there or anything? Yeah, that's something I think I've felt differently over the years. Nowadays, I would be more on the liberal side and very concerned about the climate. And so kind of coming from, you know, the oil town and finding that a lot of like the privilege I experience in my current life is, you know, from oil money and being from, you know, one of the most conservative places in Canada. It was the kind of, I think, kind of switching my identity. I switched, you know, far more to the left. And so I think in some ways it was, it was a weird mix of, I don't know, I guess like change seems too strong, but like a mix of like, yeah, I made it out of there and a mix of like, oh, I've like kind of benefited off this, you know, potentially species ending thing. But I think in the years since I've kind of come, I guess, I don't know, you, you know, it's, it's still home. And even though politically, I might not agree with everyone there. Like, I think we have far more things in common than we have difference. So yeah, that's, it's, it's kind of tricky, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is really complicated. I think yeah, understanding the life had feelings and our sort of sense of self is, is all just really complex and complicated that we're constantly figuring out. Yeah. It's a, mm -hmm. It's difficult to even just like accept parts of ourselves for feelings of like regret or mistakes that we feel like we've made, but still accepting them as part of who we are, even if we don't share our mistakes with everyone. Mm -hmm. We recognize that what we understand and what we know is informed by the mistakes that we made or the feelings of the past. Yeah, I mean, it's something that I grapple with too. Even now, like just in a, a different but similar way, I'm still working on my PhD and I've basically been going to school now for... I think it'll be 10 years, like basically 10 years straight coming in January. And I wanted to do a PhD when I was in high school. And so I'm sitting here now thinking about how like a 16 year old 16 years ago told me that I should do a PhD. And now I'm like, 
I'm almost done, but what do I do now? Like, I'm not going to ask my 16-year-old self what I want to do now. So, but it's sort of complicated. It's like all that I've done so far has been built up based on like what I've done. And yeah, it's just, it's, it can be complicated. Yeah. I do want to say, I think there is like something powerful about spending time where you were raised and where you grew up and where's home. Like, you know, even when I visited Grand Prairie last year, like, yeah, there's a part of me that was like, huh, just thought about like, you know, what would it be like buying a house here and living here? Because you know, I think it's wrong to just disparage somewhere just because, you know, just you disagree with some of it. And you know, if you're willing to put work in and in, enjoy the community around you, like, and that's kind of where your home is, I think that can be really fulfilling on a deep level. Thanks for sharing, David. Mm-hmm. We've had quite a deep philosophical discussion about finding oneself, <laughs> which is a good thought. Everybody would have this sort of not identity crisis, but like finding of oneself. I don't think identity crisis is the right word. I just like discovering who you really are outside of your, where you grew up or your external experience, you know, external factors that were on you as a child. You know, we all find oneself. Yeah. Do you guys feel like you've kind of, you know, I just turned 30, but yeah, I feel like now it's starting to like, you know, you're really starting to settle into it. You know, (laughs) you're not in your twenties anymore. So like, do you two feel like you're kind of like, almost working to like build those i guess like i want to say pillars of support or pillars of identity in your life that just kind of like you know bring structure and stability to your existence i do feel that that's something that i want to do but it's hard coming towards the end of a phd and my my wife jessica is also in a phd and just sort of the mentality of of being a student of being a university student, the environment sort of inflicts on you this like, feeling of a sense of temporariness. We both feel that we want this sort of permanence or like sort of stability and support, but it's also so uncertain, especially for PhDs, like when will it finish and sort of like what will it be once it's done? But we, we do have stronger feelings about moving to places that can build more community. Toronto is very big for Canada. And there are lots of people who have similar interests, but it's difficult to feel community when most of the people that you interact with don't feel a part of your community just because of how many different communities and how large it is. So yeah, I do feel the sense of it, but at the moment it's still so unsure about what it means or where it is. Mm. But being in Edmonton this past summer, it was great to have familiar feelings about really actually one of them just being Northern Summers. I mean, it's not as far North as Grand Prairie, but that's great. Yeah. A lot farther north than Toronto. Yeah, it is way farther north than Toronto. I mean, yeah. like Portland's farther north than Toronto. So, <laughs> I find that like making pillars of identity, like part of me has been after high school, just wherever the wind blows. I got a local job in Grand Prairie, and I worked there for like three years. That really helped set my career on path as I got in construction, and eventually in 2016, I got my journeyman certificate, and then been living in Edmonton for some years now been married, took a mortgage out on a home, been self-employed for almost two years. So like really putting down roots here in the city, one might say, yeah, <laughs> getting married and buying a house are pretty long-term commitments. <laughs> mm-hmm. But like, I was thinking about those things, those choices I've made, David, in relation to like your bicycle journey. It's like, you really just take it one day at a time and, you know, you work on your relationship one day at a time, one week at a time. You work on the house, on the mortgage one day at a time. And it just slowly accumulates and builds up secular things. But also it builds up who you are as well as you're doing all those day-to-day things. Yeah. Did you find those decisions to get a house and settle in place? Did those come easy to you or was it kind of like, oh, well, I'm not so sure. I'd never made a decision like that quickly. I want to be a homeowner for like a number of years, but then it's like, all right, you decide to be a homeowner and it's like, okay, what do you buy? Where do you buy? How do you buy? When do you buy? All those things. And it's like, and that's just like any other major decision. You make the decision and you just have to commit to keeping that decision, which we do things like that all the time. Yeah. So I never made them lightly, but I must say it really wasn't difficult, I would say. For my wife and I, this has been... Well, living where we are now in Toronto, but also just living in Toronto has been the longest we've lived in 
in a place and particularly the longest we've lived in the same apartment or home since we've moved out from home, like since we graduated high school sort of and left home. Either because like doing schoolwork or something else, maybe like you don't stay in the same house with the same roommates through your whole university experience or something. But so there's that in part, but also the PhDs take longer. And so part of the strangeness of my experience has been that like a lot of things following high school have felt like they happen quickly. Like, oh, I'm doing this now and I'm doing this or I'm moving here or I'm going there or moving apartments, you know, getting home for the summer, just a bunch of different things happening. And then with doing my PhD and and the pandemic and being in Toronto, which has had pretty extended lockdowns over the first 18 months or so, it was sort of like, even with everything feeling so slow, like in the outside world because of the pandemic, it felt like my progress felt slower. And it felt for the first time that like, I was the slow one and the whole world just kept going. And that was a very strange experience to sort of be a year apart from like catching up with someone and they ask how things are going. And it's like actually the same, like I'm working on the same problem, like (laughs) same problem at school and I'm living in the same place and like doing the same things and nothing for me has changed. And yet it feels like it's been so long. And it was, yeah, it was, it's been something that's been harder to grapple with because it's sort of like, in terms of building something like one day at a time, it's like I, I am working on things. Like it's not like I haven't done things, but uh, PhDs can be really isolating because like who else literally in the whole world is working on the same problem as you? Because if they are, then you can't both do a PhD on the same topic. That's not how PhDs work. So it's very, it can be very isolating. And part, yeah, part of my motivation then for this podcast is to feel less isolated and have people to talk to about things and catch up with people about their lives. And, and also, I think, to have a project that has a faster turnaround time. <laughs> so I can I can yeah. finish. I feel like I'm finishing something on my way to actually finishing PhD. So. Yeah, hit that publish button yeah. every couple of weeks. Yeah, and... it's much different than solving physics problems. It can go on for a long time. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, thanks for asking, David. Yeah, so I guess as we come closer to the end of our time, David, do you have any fun memories or fun or interesting things with uh, typical... Peace region things like weather and driving or, you know, any funny memories you feel like you want to share. Maybe we'll lighten the mood a little. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I look back all the time, you know, we got to hang around together and all the sleepovers like we had either your place or Alex's place and just mucking around in the backyard and jumping on the trampoline. I think those are among the best GP memories for sure. We'll have to talk to Alex, I think. Yeah. I mean, I think one kind of funny story that kind of came up recently was my dad actually just bought winter tires for the first time in his life a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and like he kind of said a year before, I, I told him like I got my winter tires on and he's like, oh, yeah, I, I never get those. And there's like kind of a flash that was like huh my dad doesn't need winter tires like do i need winter tires like have i been hosed and then i just kind of had like a mental replay of all the times like my car just like careened from a turn and ran into the curb and busted the axle and like the time Catherine and i were driving out of nighthawk and like ended up in the ditch and all these events it's like oh no winter tires that's that's the reason how many accidents could have been avoided (laughs) did he comment on his winter tires like aside from just getting them for the first time or did he say it made a difference uh i think he's yeah he's definitely noticed the difference <laughs> yeah even today it snowed here today oh my and i commented as we were walking it's like oh that person does not have winter tires on. <laughs> yeah oh yeah i saw someone do a huge fishtail out of the parking lot today intentionally or <laughs> unintentionally no. yeah this is in south common and <laughs> Yeah, I've I think I've kind of noticed that like people also become way more aggressive drivers like in and around a shopping center complex, you know? Like it's just like doggy dog out there. It's getting close to Christmas too, so Yeah. Yeah. So David, I believe you were there. We were at Alex's house and we were you know, goofing off, staying up late to bounce on the trampoline and stuff. I think we had a ball that went over the fence. So right, they lived in basically the middle of the street. So it was quick to hop over the fence and then get the ball back. Then it would be like run around all of the houses to go to get to the ball and then go back because it landed by sidewalk. So we hopped over the fence and some people were walking by and they saw us and they saw that we were, you know, juveniles. They started shouting that we were like escaping or like getting out. 
Right? Or Rebels or something Yeah, Rebels like or something. They're like, Rebels! Rebels! Yeah. So, I don't know if you were there that night, David. I'm not sure. I sometimes have a bad memory for specific events. That's understandable. Maybe we just felt, or maybe I felt too pierced by the thought that I was a rebel at the time. <laughs> it just embedded into my memory. Yeah, I'm kind of wondering now, like, why that <laughs> stuck out to you so much. <laughs> like, what? No, I'm a good boy. Yeah, it's like, don't don't tell anyone. We're just having fun. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, all those, like, those youth activities were pretty great, too. I think some highlights are, like, the manhunt. I forget. It had a name, but where they, like, dropped you off at Suicide Hill, and you had to get back to the church. Without getting wet? Yeah. 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 Getting marked with the water gun. Those were pretty fun. So we had to make it back some number of blocks from like point A to point B while other people were going around with water guns and water balloons trying to mark you and get you wet. Yeah. And I remember I had gotten picked up earlier, like marked, uh, lost. And Brother Bly was driving me around and there was someone out the window and I went to throw a water balloon (laughs) out the window at them, but it hit the inside of the car and (laughs) splashed all over Brother Bly driving. <laughs> yeah, I don't think you can do those kinds of activities in Toronto. I think somebody else would. I don't think you do it all anymore. Yeah, it's just such a liability. You know, I'd be like just letting youth wander around it. There's adults that are responsible for these minors, and they just let them go. <laughs> you know, I mean, like that's a lawyer nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sneaking through the woods. Probably could get lost, kidnapped, injured, and you we wouldn't even know it happened till later. And it's like. <laughs> Yeah, I do recall as well for an activity, we went to the hill, I guess the renamed, which once was Suicide Hill, and we went down the, the no sliding side. Um, I remember <laughs> I this broke one. my nose. <laughs> I remember that night, yeah. It's just like, oh man. Yeah, I was out for the rest of the basketball season for good reason. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of blood, lots of blood that night. Yeah, and someone like bring one of those giant inner tubes from like a tractor or something. I think we yeah, brought it. I think we, we brought it. it. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. We play like King of the Hill on that tube while going down the hill. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that was a great hill. Actually, King of the Hill on that hill outside the church. That was, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, I do recall those two. Because it's not a very steep hill, not a very large hill, but you do some sort of hand-to-hand wrestling. And you're all bundled up in your snow gear. So it actually acts as armor and protection from getting hit. So like, Getting tackled in a snowsuit really isn't that serious in the snow. Yeah. Especially when it's so dry and powdery. It's just poof. And I think another, yeah, just kind of occurred to me, another really cool thing about living that far north is the northern lights. Because, you know, in my travels and, like, you know, telling people from Canada and from the north, everyone's like, oh, have you seen the northern lights? Like, I want to see them so bad. I'm going to, like fly up there just to see the northern lights and you know for us it's just kind of been like a every now and then you look up you'll be like oh yeah there's going on right now cool yeah it's pretty cool like undeniably it's really cool <laughs> yeah yeah i think there's a few astrological phenomenons northern lights is one that you get up here but also like i think sun dogs are very fascinating but you can only get it in i wouldn't say extreme cold weather but reasonably cold weather right like most of the yeah. lower 48 states don't get that cold to have sun dogs it would happen but like i always stop and look at it and be like that it's just it's just beautiful to see the sun and then like the ring around the sun and then the two sun dogs on equally on each side it just looks very fascinating to me i think sometimes you also get in the cold like light pillars really like really intense light pillars if you're out of town and you're looking into town then the lights from town just like shoot straight into the sky because it, it reflects off the ice crystals as it goes up and then it yeah. goes to your eyes. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's hard to see in town. You usually have to be in a dark place looking at the light stuff. Yeah, that does that does make sense though. I mean, I study like astrophysics now and when I was taking like beginning courses in astrophysics, it astonished me at first just the way that I would talk with people about these astrophysical phenomena and Things that seemed really basic to me, people just didn't really have the same sort of grasp, mostly in terms of the interaction of the seasons with the way that the moon rises or the stars rise and and all that sort of thing. And like where on the east or west horizon, the sun comes up or goes down, depending on whether it's summer or winter. Because in the north, right, that change is so extreme, right? Go far enough north and you go from the sun never setting to the sun never rising. But 
just to be even in a place like Grand Prairie where the difference between the longest summer day and the shortest winter day, the sun just sort of peeping over the horizon for a little bit and then going, as it's going to do in a few <laughs> a few days up there. But then also in the summer, seeing it basically come up in the north and then just spin around all day and then go down in the north again. Those things to me were just sort of obvious. Obviously, the seasons do that, don't they? <laughs> and then meeting people who were from places closer to the equator, it's like, oh, no, actually, the sun just does the same thing every day, <laughs> year round. It's just always the same. Yeah. Yeah, I met someone from Kenya, and he's like, the difference between the two solstices was like 15 minutes or something of daylight difference, like minimal. Oh, man. And I looked it up, yeah. and in Grand Prairie, during the equinoxes, the sun will move about seven minutes a day difference in daylight. So, like, if you're driving to work... Like, from each day? Yeah. Because it moves the fastest during oh, the equinox, right? Yeah. And, like, during the equinox days, it's like, if you're driving to work the same time every day, like, you'd notice it immediately from, like, that week, you'd be like, wow, the sun's already, like, 20, 30 minutes different this week. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think another thing for me that was, like, you just kind of grow up thinking it's normal, and then once you kind of get out there, you realize it's not normal. It's, like you know, driving five hours to get to like the next biggest or a bigger city. <laughs> yes. Like you just kind of like, yeah, that's the way. If you want to go somewhere else, you got to drive a really long way. But then you kind of get out there and be like, oh, if this was Europe, like you could have driven through a couple different countries and different cultures and you know, on the span of a trip to Edmonton. Yeah. Have you found as well, David, meeting people and talking about things that you thought were also normal and then realized we're actually just Canadian? For example, I had this experience today where I was talking about the cartoon show called Little Bear. <laughs> and then it was like, what are you talking about? I've never heard the show before. And I look up and like, oh, apparently Little Bear was produced by CBC and it's a Canadian show. And it's like, oh, that happens to me often where I talk about some sort of Canadian music artist or Canadian like film producer or some show or something. And it's distinctly Canadian. And I didn't realize it. I don't know if you've had that experience very much. No, I don't think so. I feel like mostly I try to consume as much I guess, yeah, I think growing up, I was almost kind of like, I don't know the right word here, but not super interested in like the Canadian identity. Yeah. Like kind of more just of the mind, like, oh, we're basically just like US light. Like all my favorite <laughs> things are from the States. All our major news is from the States. Like, yeah. Yeah. Maybe it was the consequence of having just only two channels and having only CBC and CTV to watch. <laughs> yeah. Uh, YTV. YTV had some good CanCon. Yeah, that's true. Anyway. Uh, thank you so much, David, for joining us. It's been great talking with you, great catching up with you. Thanks for your perspective and yeah, for taking the time to share with us some of your journey so far through life. It's been it's been really great and really insightful. Yeah, it's been a pleasure, David. Appreciate you joining us on our show. Yeah, well, thanks so much for having me out and hope we can reconnect in the future. And thank you to all of our listeners. If you would like to share your story with us or give us feedback, you can email us at lifenorthofthe54th at gmail.com. Or you can check us out at our new domain name, peacecountrylife.ca. We're really excited about that too. Well, David, we hope to see you around soon. Take care. Yeah, you as well. Thanks. Thanks.